I'd ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the 15th chapter of the Gospel according to John. Aren't you excited? It's always an exciting thing to announce that we come to a new chapter in our studies in the Bible. That means a couple of things. It means, first of all, we've, we've, we've accomplished uh, studying through 14 chapters in the Gospel of John together. But I think it's also an anticipation of the things that are to come. Hopefully, good things that we'll discover. Riches of God's grace and goodness and uh, that we find in this 15th chapter of John's Gospel. Of course, this is the middle chapter of three chapters that comprise what's called the Farewell Discourse. And as I tried to indicate uh, last week, chapter 15 brings us not only to a new chapter, but also to a new emphasis in Jesus' farewell discourse. Because up to this point, the strong emphasis has been upon words of comfort to troubled hearts. The disciples who have now been forced to come to terms with their Lord's frequently repeated announcement that he's leaving. And where he's going, they can't not come. And now Jesus has given them solid reasons to be, if not of good cheer, at least hopeful that this departure of Jesus is not a permanent departure, nor will they be in any way losers, because he has gone to leave and to go to the Father. Because he's gone to pave a way for them into the Father's presence. He's gone away so that he can be exalted at the Father's right hand and he can send forth his spirit. They'll get him back. He will come to them. With his death and resurrection and his ascension, they will receive renewed fellowship with Jesus through the spirit. They would know the presence of the triune God. They would know not only the spirit that would dwell in, in them, but through the spirits indwelling, the Father will come and Christ will come. They will know answers to their prayers. They will, have been give, they will be given greater works to do. They're given Jesus peace as a legacy. All this Jesus articulates as reasons to be comforted in the midst of their sorrow. But with the 15th chapter, the words of comfort, they don't extinguish completely, but they recede to the background nonetheless. And they're replaced by words that challenge us, words that call the disciples to faithful lives of fruitful service. To quote uh, the commentator Leon Morris, he says that Jesus is not simply issuing some comforting advice. He did issue lots of comforting advice in the 14th chapter, but he's not simply doing that. He's outlining the difficult but important way of service. As we saw last week, he ended in the 14th chapter on the note that the prince of this world is coming. And uh, there's a need for him and his disciples to be up and about the doing of the Father's will, doing the things that the Father had commanded. It's no time to continue on in self-indulgence and in self-pity. The time has arrived to rise and to go from here to the work that is before us. I know that some of you had a bit of a problem last week when I took that word that to rise, let us go from here, uh, to be not a direction to physically leave the upper room, to go elsewhere, to start walking on the way to Gethsemane as he continued to teach, 
but we found, don't find anything of movement. Um, in fact, it's in, I believe it is a final exhortation. Um, arise and go from here, that is, from the place of your self-indulgent, self-pitying need for comfort to doing the things that are now before us. The time is short. The prince of this world has come. And I thought of the fact that the words that we find in verse 31 of chapter 14, rise and go from here, are the same words that are found in Mark's gospel in Mark chapter 14. I'm going to ask you to turn to that. It's a parallel passage, and I think it gives us a little bit of light. I don't know if it's absolutely convincing and compelling that I have it right, that it's not a direction to leave and go elsewhere, but it's a, it's a, it's a call to, to rise to the opportunity or to the moment, to rise to the things that are before us. Because here in the 14th chapter of Mark's Gospel, they're in Gethsemane where Jesus prays and he comes back and he finds them sleeping. And um, it's at that point when Jesus says, in the words of, um, well, let's go to 41, he uh, came a third time, said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. Again, it's the same note of John uh, 14. The hour has come. The Son of Man is going to be delivered up to the hands of men. The time has come. The, the betrayer has come to do his work. And now the betrayer is coming with the armed guards from Jerusalem, with their clubs and with their swords. And Jesus says the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Wise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now this call to rise, let us be going, what is he saying? He's saying, let's get, make our escape from the garden. Let's rise and continue on, moving into some other place in lo- their location. Well, no. Because immediately, we're told in 43, while he was still speaking, Judas came. One of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and scribes and the elders. The call is a cry to arise to the moment. To rise to the fact that the hour has come. To rise to the fact that the betrayer is at hand. To rise and do the duty that God has given us. Of course for them it would be to flee. But to Jesus it would be to submit. He could have called the the Father. He would send twelve legion of angels to deliver him. Much less twelve disciples. But yet Jesus knew this was the path of obedience. He was called to. To give his life a ransom for many. And so this arise and let us be going is not the, a call to, to leave and go elsewhere. It's not a call to leave the garden. It's a call to face the enemy, to rise to the occasion, to rise to the obedience that the Father has called us to do and to do the work that we have been given. So Jesus has a work of obedience to perform. A work of obedience that would lead him to the death of the cross. That would lead him to the open tomb. That would lead him to the throne of glory in heaven. And it's in the light of his resurrection and ascension that these disciples also have a work to do. They have a work to live the life of the new creation. To be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth and to subdue it with the message of the gospel. 
to make disciples of the nations. And chapter 15, in a real sense, becomes our Lord's instruction as to how this work of living out this newness of life that he's come to bring through his death and resurrection is to be done successfully. The great question really is, how can we carry out this work that Jesus has given us to do? How can we bring fruit unto God? How can we, in the light of who and what we are in our weakness, we are abject failures, they turned and ran in the face of the arrival of the uh, priests and the soldiers and the betrayer, but now they're called to carry out this commission that the Lord assigns to them in the midst of enemies in the midst of a world that would sooner persecute them than praise them in a world that would reject them much sooner than receive them how is the work to be done? in a real sense the answer rests in their continued relationship to God and Christ and the work of the triune God in them and through them and Jesus presents himself in chapter 15 in terms that would have meant much more to a first century Jew than to 21st century Christians I would probably believe at least in terms of the commentaries I read that some people would just think that Jesus came up to this idea of a vine and fruit and branches and a husband and a uh, a vine dresser uh, just from the experience of living in an agrarian culture I mean you got vines in the uh, to be seen in vineyards this is we have vineyards in our own location here in the Hudson Valley there were plentiful vineyards in the uh, nation of uh, Israel and so Jesus is just taking uh, something from common uh, knowledge of the people and he's drawing something of a parallel, a parable or an allegory about uh, vines and uh, gardeners and uh, branches well the problem with that is that Jesus is using a language in which he's making a claim about himself it's one of the I am verses we find in John's gospel there's seven of them I am, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And when you look at those seven, at least the previous six, all of those assertions about Jesus that he makes about himself, all of the claims he makes about himself in these I am statements, were made on the backdrop of things that were happening and upon the backdrop of realities that came into the experience of the nation of Israel that stemmed back into the Old Testament. Think of the I am the bread of life statement. There was the whole bread of life discourse of chapter 6 where Jesus speaks about not laboring for the food that perishes but for that which endures unto eternal life. And the Jewish leaders turn and say, look, we know Moses gave us manna from heaven. And Jesus says, well, no, it wasn't Moses, it was the Father that gave you the manna. But yet that manna was but a temporary thing. And that manna filled their bellies until they got to the promised land, 
But then the miracle, the manna continued, uh, uh, ceased, it did not continue. But I am the true manna. I am the true bread that comes down from heaven. It's not just going to feed your bellies for a season as you traffic your way through the wilderness. I am the true bread that's going to lead to eternal life. I'm going to be your sustenance. I'm going to be that the one who gives you life and feeds your souls so that you will never hunger and so that you will never thirst. Think of the I am the light of the world statement. It's upon the backdrop of the Feast of the Tabernacles where they had that light ritual that ended the tabernacle, the, the, the feast on the great day, the great the final day of the feast, the great day. And so in the light of the light uh, ritual that Jesus is saying, I'm the true light. I'm the true light of the world. You're going to walk away from this ritual at the Feast of Tabernacles having a memory of a light ritual, but I'm a light that never goes out. It is never extinguished. I'm the light of the world. Me that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Again, it's on the backdrop of things that are happening in the situation Jesus is in, and it's really calling to mind the realities of the faith and belief of the Jewish people based upon uh, their Old Testament hope. Their hope coming out of the Feast of Tabernacles. Their hope coming out of the fact that God was the God who gave them manna in the wilderness. Jesus says, I'm the true manna. I'm the true light. And then you think of the Good Shepherd. And that's on the backdrop of the synagogue saying to the man who was born blind whom Jesus healed that uh, you're out, you're out they cast him out of the synagogue and so doing they were showing that they were not faithful shepherds of Israel they were just like the shepherds of Israel that Jeremiah spoke against in chapter 23 of his prophecy and that Ezekiel spoke against in chapter 37 and chapter 34 of his prophecy God had much to say about evil shepherds, false shepherds self-centered, self-absorbed shepherds that did not faithfully guide and lead the people and that's what these false shepherds were doing and it's right on the backdrop of the false shepherds doing evil things that Jesus says I'm the good shepherd who's going to lay down my life for the sheep it's in the light of the temple and the hope that the people had you come through the gate, the door of, of entry into the court to worship God at the temple that we have life and we have salvation and Jesus says I'm the true door I'm the true door if you come in by me you go in and out and you'll find refuge you'll find food and plenty I'm the true door that leads into the blessings of God's grace and salvation you see the point is that it's upon the backdrop of realities that were present in the hope and the life of the people of Israel based upon the Old Testament promises and institutions that all came to nothing. It came to failure. They're fed with manna only to enter into a land filled with milk and honey and they pollute it with their very presence and their idolatry and their sin. There's a failed enterprise. God led them with his light that guided them through the wilderness in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire and they enter into the land and they give themselves over to the darkness of the idolatry of the nations 
the shepherds lead after their own designs and after their own desires. The whole temple ritual was just perverted and twisted and distorted so that life was not to be found in the ritual any longer. The glory of God himself departed. And now Jesus says, I'm the true vine. Again, there's something about these words. It's not just Jesus was passing a vineyard. And so I think that gives a good illustration of what the Christian life is like. He's hearkening back to realities we find in the Old Testament. Now, in the words of this passage that begins in verse 1 where Jesus, let me just read it to you. He says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Actually, the word is gardener. I'm the true vine and my father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Now these are words in which we have this claim that the Son makes that I am the vine. We also have a word in which Jesus says that the Father is the vine dresser. This whole matter of his being the vine, we have one who is tending the vineyard. He's the vine dresser. Actually, he's the gardener. He's the one that's caring for the needs of his own garden. And then there is a call that's placed upon the disciples to abide in him as he is the vine and we are the branches. So we have the son and his claim. We have the father and his competence as a gardener or a tender of the garden or the vineyard. And then we have a call to abide in him as he abides in us. And so a claim, a competence, and a call. And I thought to do all of this in one message, and I realized I'm not going to be able to. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at the claim of the Son. I am the vine. And look at its deep roots in the Old Testament and exactly what it means. And then we're going to look at the competence of the Father to be the one who prunes and tends the vineyard and that it might bear fruit. And then we're going to see the call, the responsibility that's laid upon the people of God to abide in Him as He abides in them. So let's begin with the claim of the Son. Again, I am the true vine. And again, it's not something that Jesus came up with on the spot as He passed a vineyard. It's not just a statement about contemporary agricultural practices that took place in the land of Israel. There's an imagery here of vineyards and gardeners and fruitfulness that really extends back to creation itself. In creation itself, we have the language of fruitfulness, we have the language of a garden, we have the language of trees and of fruit. In Genesis chapter 1, when God makes man in his image and in his likeness, he blesses them and he says, Be fruitful, be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Of course, that speaks about physical progeny, that is the children of Adam and Eve that would fill the land as image bearers. But it's also to be fruitful in many other ways, to bear fruit for God's glory. God's concerned with the people who will show forth his image in the world, who will show forth the reality of truth and of holiness. 
Show forth the reality of righteousness and mercy and kindness and love. It's in all these ways Adam would be a fruit bearer, living to the glory of God as his image. So the man and the woman had the work of being fruitful in the garden that's filled with trees of the Lord's own planting. I don't know why we have this notion that the fruit was an apple. It certainly would not have been the thought of a first century Jew to think, oh boy, that must have been an apple that Eve had eaten. They would think in terms of the trees that mostly populated um, the ancient Near East. And those fruits were grapes and vineyards. Olives that grew on olive trees. They would think of the dates that grew on the date trees. In fact, the picture of prosperity in the prophets was that every man would have his own vine and fig tree. That's the picture of a prosperous person possessing those things. But of course, the creation it was the picture of so those who were blessed, who were sustained, and they were provided for by a God whose first act after the six-day creation, after actually the making of the man, uh, forming him dust from the ground and bringing, breathing into his nostrils the breath of life, was the next thing he did was that he made a garden. He planted a garden that he placed the man in. Garden filled with trees of his own planting. Out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Eden was a place of delight. A place that was filled with vineyards and olive trees and fig trees. Garden of delight to sustain the man and the woman as they carried out the work they were given by God to do to be fruitful in their service to the living God. Of course, when sin entered into the world, what happened? A man's thrust out of that garden of delight, thrust out of that place where all the trees were there by the planting of the Lord for his good, and where he was sustained by God's hand and God's provisions. But yet the command to be fruitful unto God did not end. In fact, it's renewed after the flood when Moses, I'm sorry, Noah, comes out of the ark and offers the burnt offerings to the Lord. There is that renewal of the command of creation uh, towards fruitfulness. But the conditions in which man enters into to attain the fruit of the land is in the face of the curse of the land. It's in the face of opposition. Briars and thorns. But you see, God did not end his own work of planting gardens of planting vineyards. Because the whole picture of Israel's life in Canaan, in that land that Scripture tells us overflowed with milk and with honey, that overflowed with fig trees they didn't plant, and vineyards that they did not plant, that they would eat from, it was a picture that also brought them to see that they themselves, as a nation, were God's vineyard, God's trees of righteousness that he himself planted in a land that was very much to be like the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 13 we have a picture of Abraham who was promised possession of this land. 
this land that would be his and his descendants and every which way that he looked from the east and the west and the north and the south and he has been told that his descendants would be as many as the sand of the sea and as many as the stars of the heavens when he entered into the land with his nephew Lot uh, the land was not sufficient to sustain them in terms of the abundance of blessing that God had given to them. That Abraham was rich in livestock and silver and gold and Lot as well. Um, and the land did not support both of them dwelling together. And we find in the book of uh, Genesis chapter 13 and verse 10 that Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of God. It's like the garden of the Lord. It's like Eden. Chapter 50 of the book of Isaiah. We have another reference here of the restoration of the people who had lost their land because of their sin and had been taken captive to Babylon. Yet there would be that restoration that God would bring. And in chapter 50 and verse 3, I'm sorry, 51 in verse 3. It says, For the Lord comforts Zion. Zion's his city. He comforts all her waste places. That's the places of the land that came under judgment because of their sin and brought the captivity and their exile. And he makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of Yahweh. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving in the voice of song. So you have the picture both of Abraham anticipating possession of the land. His nephew saying it's like, it's like Eden. God is restoring Eden to, uh, to us. And then you have the people taken into captivity, having hope of the restoration, seeing again being restored to that land was like Eden. God was restoring paradise to his people. And Israel as a nation was to be the vine, was to be the vineyard, was to be the planting of the Lord in that land. So that the blessing of Abraham would extend not just to the land, but to the nations of the world. And you, Abraham, and your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But there's a basic problem. Not just dropping the recording device, which got disconnected. I think it's still recording. But the problem is sin. The problem is rebellion. And you have a number of pictures in the Old Testament that point us to this frustration that God Himself possessed by the fact that this nation that was to be His vine, was to be His vineyard, had failed in their calling. Isaiah chapter 5. I'm just going to read three of them. There's many others we can turn to. But in Isaiah chapter 5, we have a song about the vineyard that Isaiah sings. He says, Let me sing for my beloved, 
my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleaned it of stones, planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. What's the picture? It's a picture of the gardener, isn't it? The gardener is at work, planted the vineyard. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. It should be devoured. I'll break down its wall and it should be trampled down. I will make a waste and it shall not be primed or hoed. And briars and thorns shall grow up. And I will command the clouds that it rain no more upon it. What's happening here? Well, Israel's doing an Adam and Eve. They're defiling the Lord's vineyard. They're failing to honor God in the garden God planted. And they're getting evicted. They're being cast out. In this case, it's the Babylonians that are going to take them into exile. But then chapter 7 makes it very clear what Isaiah is indicating, what he's talking about. This is in verse 7. For the vineyard of Yahweh of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. For he looked for justice and behold bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold an outcry. God is building a garden. He was restoring Eden to his people. And the people he redeemed out of Egypt brought into the land and their sin and idolatry, their injustice and their oppression has now made them no longer fit to inhabit that land. And God's going to cast them out of the vineyard. Look at the book of Jeremiah chapter 2 in verse 21. Let's take two from the prophets and we'll take one from the book of Psalms. Jeremiah chapter 2. Look what it says in verse 21. God says in the words of verse 24, long ago, and, and, and this is really wrong, the next words in the ESV, it really should be, for long ago, you broke your yoke. In other words, you broke the bonds that bound you to me, Israel. You look for your own freedom apart from the wonderful liberating freedom that I gave to you. And you burst your bonds, but you said I will not serve. That was their heart commitment. They did not want to serve God. They did not want to serve the God who redeemed them out of Egyptian bondage. Yes, on every high hill and every green tree you bowed down like a whore. And the picture there is of idolatry, of giving themselves over to idol worship. Yet I planted you a choice vine holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? I planted you a choice vine. God is the God who is restoring the garden. He's remaking Israel to dwell in the land of promise to be that people 
who would bear fruit to his glory. And they became degenerate and wild and rebellious and did not want him to rule, rule, rule over them and reign over them. The book of Psalms has something of the same perspective, especially in the 80th Psalm, Psalm 80. I'll just read to you the 8th verse. Again, one of the notes of this, again, it's a note, uh, it's, a, it's a, a psalm in the, the face of captivity, the people who have been brought into captivity. In verse 7, and this is a, a refrain, Restore us, O God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. Turn back to us, Lord. Your face is turned against us. Now, Lord, your face, we desire that it would be turned back to us. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. So there's a picture of God's intention with respect to the nation. They inhabit the land as that choice vine. And just as Eden should have, if sin and that entered in, have extended through the obedience and righteousness and procreation of the first man and woman, so that the knowledge of the Lord would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. So the Israel project was the same type of project. A people in a garden. A people serving God, obeying God, being fruitful to the glory of God. That the garden of the Lord would now infect the nations. And all the nations would come to be the people of God. That was what they were called to do. But through Abraham's seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But instead of blessing the nations, their sin and disobedience and fruitlessness will curse upon themselves. See, Israel was the vine. The vine the Lord planted to make the land of veritable Eden, to make the world become influenced by the the nation as they showed forth the fruits of righteousness and obedience and service. That they would be blessed through Israel. But Israel became a wild vine, yielding wild grapes, bearing the fruits of idolatry and sin and oppression and unfaithfulness and injustice. And so, what's the picture? You come to the end of the Old Testament and you see that God's gardening work is frustrated by human sin and rebellion. I know He's the sovereign God and has it all under control, but nonetheless, His plan and purpose was the garden would be extended worldwide and the whole earth would be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There were people that would be fruitful and it would multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. But the planting of the garden in Eden ended badly. The planting of Israel in Canaan failed likewise. What I'm suggesting to you is God's not ended with his plans to restore Eden, to plant his garden, to form a new humanity that would be fruitful in their service to his name. Jesus says, I am the true vine. I'm not a failed vine, I'm the true vine. I'm not a temporary vine that will get uprooted and uprooted. 
vines of God's planting in the Old Testament failed. I'm the real deal. I'm the one through whom the intention of God to plant his garden, to form a creation that would be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, that would spread the knowledge of the Lord throughout the world, and the glory of the Lord would be revealed throughout the world. It's come through me. I'm the vine. I'm the vine. I learned something this week that I think is of interest at this point in the message. It's amazing to me I still learn things I've never knew before in the Bible. You know, when Jesus was upon the cross, there were the two thieves. And one of them was a penitent thief who, after a time when he perhaps joined his fellow in mocking Jesus, came to look to Jesus and cry to Jesus and say, Lord, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And Jesus, hanging upon the cross, spoke the words to the penitent thief, Today you will be with me. And he doesn't say in heaven. He doesn't say, Today you will be with me in my Father's house. He doesn't say, Today you will be with me in eternal habitations. But he says, Today you will be with me in paradise. You know what the word paradise means? It's actually a word that's borrowed from the Persians. And it's a word that was used to describe the gardens of the king. The king in his stately palace would have his gardens. One of the seven wonders of the world was the gardens of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Kings were known for their gardens. Jesus says to that man hanging upon the cross, Today you will be with me in the garden of the king. Today you will be with me in a place in which that which was lost through sin will be restored in its fullness. Isn't that interesting? The first fruits of the death of Jesus on the cross is realized in that man that died next to him on the cross. I'm the true vine. By my death, resurrection, and ascension, I restore creation to its rights. Today you will be with me in the garden of God, in the garden of the King. What does all this say to us, folks? Well, it says to us, first of all, that Jesus is claiming to be the true Israelite. Is he not? Is he not? I mean, what was the vineyard or the vine in the Old Testament? It's asserted again and again. It was Israel. Israel was the vine. And yet Jesus declares, I am the true vine. Just as I'm the true man that came down from heaven. Just as I am the true shepherd to lead and govern and guide my people wisely and well. Jesus comes to fulfill what Israel failed to fulfill. They failed to fill their calling to be the nation through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Jesus goes to the cross so that the nations would hear the good news of his salvation. Make disciples of the nations. Baptize them. Teach them all things whatsoever I have commanded. 
sometimes you hear that well the church has uh, supplanted Israel I do believe that the church has the promises of Israel but you see the promises that were given to Israel were told in 2 Corinthians are yea and amen where? in Christ Jesus in Christ Jesus Jesus himself is the true Israelite Jesus himself is the son of Abraham through whom the blessing of Abraham comes to the nations Jesus is the true Israelite who recapitulates the whole story of Israel in his own life again you read about it in the gospels all the gospels tell us something of a story of Jesus as, the, as Israel as Israel in flesh as the one who goes from the persecution of the king who took the lives of the children and out of Israel God calls his son calls him to come to a river in which he's baptized like the people of Israel came to the sea and crossed it on dry land and then Jesus is led out into the wilderness for 40 days like the people of Israel were led out into the wilderness for 40 years. And then Jesus goes to the mountain and speaks the law of the kingdom. Recapitulation of the whole history of Israel in the person of our Lord Jesus. He is the fulfillment of the very idea of Israel. And we really need to read our Bible that way. Because our Bible is a Christ-centered book. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures, for them you think you have eternal life, but these are they that testify of me. It's not an Israel-centered book. It's a Christ-centered book. Jesus is the true Israelite who succeeds where Israel failed. Just as he's the last Adam that succeeds where the first Adam failed. But then you think of how our Lord, in the face of the approach of the prince of this world, the advance of the betrayer, the advance of those from the chief priests and the scribes with their swords and with their clubs, in the face of imminent betrayal, arrest, trial, judgment, and death, in spite of all, to use the words of the hymn of Isaac Watts, the hosts of death, where powers of hell unknown, would put their most dreadful form of rage and mischief on, Our Lord knows His ministry will triumph. But this is the path of His obedience. This is the path that in the face of all that He's called upon to endure, the shame of the crucifixion, that in this the Father is well pleased. The Father sees obedience in His doing and in His dying. Because he was obedient to death, the death of the cross, that cruel, ignominious, horrific form of death, God highly exalted him, gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord 
to the glory of God the Father. If our Lord can face those set of circumstances that he was faced with, with the certainty of his triumph, what you and I, in the light of that triumph, to face the troubles, the trials, the difficulties of our way, in a way that's not doom and gloom, in a way that's not how helpless and hopeless I am, oh poor me. I love the way Watts ends his hymn. I shall be safe, for Christ displays his conquering power and his guardian grace. Regardless of what we have gone through, are going through, and may call to go through, we are safe. For the triumph has already been secured. And we are more than conquerors to him that loved us. Christ displays his conquering power and his guardian grace. And then, just lastly, I would say, our confidence in the success of the church's mission is based upon the success of Christ's mission. Our obedience is the outflow of his obedience. Again, I think that arise and let us go forth was not just for us, it was for him. He went forth as the trailblazer, as the pioneer, as the captain of our salvation who goes before us and we follow. And our confidence in the success of our lives and our mission is not based upon worldly standards, is not based upon what people think of us. It's not based upon even what we think about ourselves. It's not in the strength of our resolve. It's not in the wisdom of our plans. It's not in the energy of our efforts. Our success is based on the reality of the success of Christ in bringing in a new creation through His death, through His resurrection. He's the vine that's been planted that that new creation will be birthed. That new garden will be constructed. And he becomes the source of our sustenance, our strength, our wisdom, our energy. We derive everything from him. And our union with him. And that's why he's going to go on to speak of that very reality when he says, abide in me and I in you. You see, it's not the strength of our resolve. It's his identity as the vine. And it's the work he has done as the vine and the father does as the gardener. It's really the source of all of our hope and all of our joy and all of our confidence and all of our freedom to live in this world with all of its horrors without hanging our head in shame. But in the midst of all of the things that are horrific about a sinful world to be a people of hope to be a people of confident expectation that this world will not be always what it is God's garden will come to earth there will be a new city a new Jerusalem come down from God from heaven heaven and earth will be joined the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ 
and he will reign forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for the joyful words that our Lord speaks to us about his own identity, about his own claims, and we're thankful those claims are not fraudulent. Those claims are rooted in reality and in truth, and we're thankful we are the recipients of the benefits of those realities, that we feed upon the living bread. We're guided by the light of the world. We are protected and defended and our interests are secured by the shepherd who leads us. We're thankful that he who is the true vine is the source of our life and of our comforts and our fruitfulness that we can bear fruit to the, for the glory of God because of him. Give us faith, we pray, that rests in him Give us enduring faith to abide in Him. Give us the ability not to look at our situation, our circumstances, our pitiful resources, our past record and all of its flaws, but to look to Jesus and find in Him our all in all. So we ask you to hear our prayers. We ask you to bless our consideration of these things for the sake of your dear Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.